Well, hey everyone, welcome to episode 335 of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. On today's episode, I bring you one of my favorite and one of the most inspiring photographers from down under, Paul Holen. Paul is well known for his mind-blowing and evocative aerial photography and his YouTube work, but today we learned so much more about his personal work that, quite simply, left me so inspired and full of hope for mankind. I hope that today's episode will leave you all feeling energized to make a meaningful impact on your communities. Okay, let's get to this week's episode with Paul Holen. All right. Paul Holen one Holen. It's great to have you on the podcast. <laughs> that is the first time in my life I've been introduced that way, Matt Payne. So we're we're breaking ground already. Yes, 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 yes. I mean, I wish I could take credit for it, but you gave me the idea and I just ran with it. <laughs> well, so Paul, uh, first of all, thank you for having me on your YouTube show um, that you guys do over there in Australia. That was really fun to do that with you guys a couple of years ago now. And um, I'm sure we'll talk more about that whole project later in the conversation here. And also, it was really awesome to give you my money um, when you won our aerial award in our inaugural year of our competition in LPA. <laughs> Straight, straight out of your bank account, Matt. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. It's gotten put to good use, I'll tell you that. Oh, good. Good, good. Well, so, Paul, for people who haven't heard about you before, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, yeah, that million-dollar question. So, um, yeah, my name's Paul Holland. I have four passports from... Uh, Dutch father, American mother, born in New Zealand and live in Australia and become a citizen 23 years ago. I live on the beautiful wild island of Tasmania on the bottom southeast corner of Australia. Closest place in the world to New Zealand, funny enough, where I was born when I was off to see the world, ended up here. I'm a full-time working photographer for a long time now. I've been shooting maybe 25 to 30 years. I shoot just about every genre under the sun because I thrive on diversity and I love travel. Probably most known for my landscape work and particularly work from an aerial perspective. Um, but as you'll learn through the show, that's, uh, there's plenty of feathers in the cap, so to speak, and, and hopefully will continue to be so. I, I love um, diving in the deep end on new things and I, I really thirsty to grow and evolve and, and I love the way working across different genres can feed into that. Nice, nice, nice. And oh, and I, Matt said to say, eligible uh, bachelor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I got you, Matt. Yeah, you beat me to it. <laughs> and no kids that I know of. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. I, I see. All right. Well, so real quick, Paul, it sounds like you could literally live anywhere in the world. Why Tasmania? I mean, it's pretty remote. Mm. Yeah, it's funny that's actually quite present on my mind, Matt. I've only been back sort of 48 hours from a five countries and five-week trip to all new places, and it's kind of like, hmm, this place is pretty cool. Mm, well, that's pretty nice. And uh, having the, the benefit of all these multiple citizenships as well is, is pretty helpful for Europe and the States. And uh, I have lived in the States. So I was very, very, very close to moving my whole life to San Francisco. I did live there on and off twice for a year or more. Uh, New Zealand is a difficult place to leave in terms of 
thinking of it as home and I always have called it home really uh, my family is all still there and it is one of the most beautiful countries on the planet so I got to Tasmania by accident I was off to see the world and I fell in love with a girl and followed her and we ended up in Tasmania which we'd never heard of it's I could tell you half a show about that story but <laughs> but when I got here it just felt like home and I think home to me it's probably three different things. There's a connection with land and country. Um, there's a depth of community and there's family. And for me, somehow, almost by surprise, this this landscape just felt like home in terms of hmm. the space. And, and since I've been here now, coming up 24, 25 years, I do recognize it is one of the most fantastic places in the world. It has the cleanest air on planet Earth. It has one of the most diverse landscapes on the planet. It has the Hobart where I live has access to wilderness like almost nowhere on earth in terms of in 10 minutes I can be on a river, up a mountain, in a forest, under a waterfall, um, surfing waves in any direction. And I live in a beautiful community, an intentional community. Um, Seven minutes from town, I can literally be under a waterfall in a minute. I can walk out the back of my house and within five minutes I can walk 15 days straight and not see a single human being in some of the wildest wilderness in the world in the southwest Tasmania. So many, many, many good reasons, um, but that's a few. Well, you got me sold. I mean, I think you should work for the tourism (laughs) board because that sounds pretty amazing to me. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, there's places like Boulder and that are pretty amazing too in the States like that. Oh, for sure. I mean, I, I, I have it pretty lucky where I live as well, but that, that does sound nice. Yeah, we, we got the surf though as well, mate. That's important. Yeah, I don't, for have, me, I don't, anyway. have, I don't have that going on for me, but that's okay. Yeah, yeah. All right, Paul. Well, let's dive into the thick of this thing here. Uh, one of the things that I learned about you just through our correspondence is that you've got a background in wilderness adventure therapy, uh, which is really quite in line with my own background in counseling and uh, clinical psychology. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about your time doing that kind of work and how it's translated into your own approach of photography. Yeah, another another hour-long question. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so I studied psychology as well, Matt. I've got a bit of a background there. I did a double degree in human nutrition, another one in psychology and education. So I was already sort of had a lot of natural interest in that field. I was already an outdoorsman. And when I went on that what crazy trip around the world and ended up in Tasmania, a, um, a fellow I was living with uh, just said, I'm just going to take you somewhere and be open-minded and go and knock on that door. And I was like, what? And I'd lived, been living with him a few months and I was just traveling and young and didn't really know what I was doing with my life really. And, uh, and I just out of curiosity, I went and knocked on that door. And it turns out when I opened the door, there was a Kiwi guy that answered it. And he was a climber. And it was the premier um, organization of wilderness therapy in this part of the world. And I personally had never even heard of it. And when we sort of got talking and had a natural Kiwi connection and he heard my background and my skill set, he invited me on a trip two weeks later. And, oh, my God, I just went out and just every fiber of my being heart and soul and said this is what i want to be doing with my life hmm. what a gift um and i almost didn't open that door i was like oh don't tell me what to do dude I'll, i'm just gonna go for a walk what's this is a bit weird 
But I'm so glad I did, and that was a good 17 years of my life. And hmm. so I was working, and it's a, it's probably a word that people recognise in the states, but in a lot of places in the world, they have no idea what it is, Matt. So just to briefly sum it up for the audience that doesn't really understand what it is, it's basically working with people in a personal development therapeutic uh, motivation in order to to use the wilderness as a therapeutic medium for for well-being and self-esteem and you can facilitate it in a way that works on leadership and communication and problem solving and conflict resolution and all sorts of things but my specific organization was working with a very wide range of clients from recovering addicts to street kids to mm-hmm. single mums to aboriginal families very marginalized sort of areas of society and people that could really do with a hand and I've always naturally found time in wild places uh, realigned your values and, and your perspective. It got you grounded. It cleared your head. Um, it helped you reconnect with country, which I personally think is a very, a very powerful and important thing to do regularly. And country mat is a ver- is an Aboriginal word, uh, an English word that that in translates to about a million levels. I'm still yet to understand of depth with the <laughs> Aboriginal people here. Because uh, their their relationship with landscape is completely interwoven and joined with their complete personal being um, on so many levels, spiritually mm-hmm. and emotionally and physically even. So when I say use the word country, it, it it actually holds a lot of meaning and depth for me personally. So I was already doing a lot of landscape photography, um, mainly on big solo trips that I was doing. Um, largely probably originally quite selfishly motivated to to relive and reconnect with these incredible places and and then maybe less selfishly to share and quite quickly I realized that I had an extra voice in this conversation in the wilderness therapy environment where a lot of these clients were going back to very difficult situations and quite easily the experience would just get washed away mm-hmm quite likely other people in their lives wouldn't be able to relate to it at all mm-hmm. and so visually I then had this this wonderful um, opportunity to be the voice uh, for them to some extent some of them couldn't speak or couldn't write or weren't literate and couldn't really describe the experience at all and and I was quite um, conscious that that you know I had this capacity to do that and over time uh, I was so passionate about it it became interwoven into the therapeutic context of the entire organization to the point where you know I was funded to do it and we bought cameras especially for the programs and we gave cameras to our clients as well to almost like be their own voice I started using photographic processes very directly uh, in in the field about you know how they want to change how they see themselves or the way other people see them the images could be used as an incredible anchor point for them to to reconnect with places where they found peace or or had breakthroughs in terms of their self-awareness and and a more positive relationship with themselves places and moments where they overcame fears and transcended beyond their own beliefs about what they thought they were capable of and 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 that sort of deepened and deepened and deepened into my personal relationship with photography where I was very clear that I had a a very precious capacity um, to do things way beyond whatever thought a photograph could do. 
and that has kind of woven through my life kind of ever since. I'm just thinking of a quote that I came up with the other day, and it's sort of a guy called Mark Denman came up with it. Everyone owns a camera, but to be a photographer, you must understand, appreciate, and harness the power you hold. Hmm. And that probably took me a good 15, 20 years to sort of wrap my head around that. And as we get through the show, you'll you'll realize more and more that's a lot of what motivates me in and around uh, seeing photography as a tool to, to do a lot of wonderful good in the world. As you were talking, I was really curious to hear you maybe briefly talk about what one of those interactions, or maybe summarize what one of those interactions with one of those clients would be like in terms of okay, you've got, you know, you're giving them a camera, you're showing them how to use the camera, but then more importantly, you're using it as a tool for them to kind of deeply explore issues in their life. And I'm just wondering kind of what that exchange looked like between you and the individual in terms of talking about the images that they're creating and um, helping them dive a little bit deeper into their own psyche or their own issues through the images that they're creating. I can think of two sort of quite different examples, Matt. One was very direct. I was with a very adult group of, of drug and alcohol rehab clients, and they were actually, if I could be a little bit biased, probably my favorite clients because I just felt like I had so much to learn from them. Mm-hmm. And these people had been down deep, dark holes, and they were you know, finding the space within themselves to climb out, and they were fresh and, and vulnerable and courageous kind of all at the same time. And... They were really trying to change the way they see themselves and at the same time the way the world sees them. And, you know, some of them were, you know, like, um, you know, out of jail and had criminal records. And, and so the way the world saw them was actually significant in terms of them re-engaging with society in a positive way um, because they'd been heavily labelled. And so they had to push against their own as well as maybe society's judgments in terms of how they're viewed and... So I, I studied a lot of what's called narrative therapy at one stage, and and I literally, as we went through, I, I wouldn't be very, I'm very subtle about it originally. I didn't approach every trip as like, here's a camera, go for it. It's it's the main tool we're using. It was more sort of reading the room and who was kind of had a natural affinity for it, who naturally felt drawn to that voice, um, and then becoming a little bit more interactive with it and come along side by side. Oh, do you want to show me what you've captured so far? And you know, is you know, what's the photograph that you found that gives you the most peace? What, what is the, what is the photograph that speaks to your relationship with this landscape you're in? What, what is um, what is a feeling that comes through that you picked up on this trip you haven't felt before? And how could you maybe? bring that more into the conversation as we're out in the field over the next few days and then right down to the point where let's do a photo shoot together where we're actively and consciously creating something you want to come home with and share with the world um, using metaphors like you know how would you, how do you want to see yourself now what would be your ultimate vision of how you'd like to be seen by the world and and using the the process of taking images as a therapeutic process and I, I learned a little bit from a guy called Jesh de Rocks he's a Canadian guy and he kind of specializes in in weaving very very therapeutic aspects into regular photography in terms of portraits and family shoots and all sorts of things in terms of um, subtle ways that you can you know guide people together and and get them touching when they naturally are falling out with each other in the family or um quietly whispering things in people's ear about what they could 
you know, speak to in their partner's ear that you knew there was trouble with. Or So yeah, I'm quite aware you can be a little bit sort of facilitative about the process. I think another one that, um, and then quite often those images were, were then, you know, displayed or celebrated afterwards within the organisation or for themselves. Probably the most powerful one was maybe the last trip we ever did. And it wasn't the last trip because I wanted it to be. The politics and bad timing shut the organisation down after 33 years of being mm. the most successful of its kind in the Southern Hemisphere. But the last trip I did was with a, a very amazing group of people that um, had a lot of physical and, and, and mental challenges. A lot of them couldn't speak or um, certainly couldn't write or, or certainly couldn't share the experience with anyone post-trip. So, you know, being right at that stage of my career where I was, it was very heightened to me that how powerful it could be, I, I took on a very, very direct role of being the voice. And I start up every night hooking up the laptop to the car batteries and putting stuff together and, and doing these deliberate shoots and really delving deep into each one's personal journey about what their great fears were or or, or what their dreams were and how images could translate to, to representing that or, or giving them the opportunity to share those those um, boundaries that they pushed past and the fears they overcame and, and the dreams they were living. And I organised for the entire organisation and all the parents to come back early and a two-hour early pickup and on the last day of the trip, literally straight off the bus, just piled everyone in, sat everyone down, didn't say a damn word, put them up on the screen on a half-hour show and there was not a single dry eye in the room. Mm. And it shook the whole organisation to the core because all of a sudden they were witnessing their clients they'd known for years doing things they never thought they were capable of doing, never thought was possible to do collectively as a group. And they were just like, oh, my God, we've got to rewrite our programs. We've, we've got to expand what we've got running here. We need to redesign our individual kind of dynamics we have with each of our clients. We need to maybe get some people with different skill sets. And it, just that 25-minute slideshow basically had a massive transformative um, impact on the organization as a whole which then of course you know translated into their daily lives and the way their parents saw them and their family members saw them the way they saw themselves was just blown out of the water and hmm. it's probably the single most powerful example i can think of in, in that particular job because it was so deliberate and intensive and and directed um and a lot of it happens i think in ways that i, I would never have seen you know, in the back rooms, you know, and a year later when they pull out the photos and have some tears, you know, sharing it with family when I'm not there. Or, or there's a lot of what happened was unseen. And this was probably one of the most powerful examples where I literally got to see it in action. That's awesome, man. Well, mm. I'm, I would love to kind of explore that a little bit deeper in terms of what that has meant for you, because I know you've talked a lot about meaning and purpose in photography or through photography. How have you arrived at your purpose and how might others follow in your footsteps? Guru mm. uh, Grasapa, this is a very good question. <laughs> oh my God, am I the person to answer this, the meaning of life? Jeez, um, all right, with a camera in hand. So uh, I'll have a crack at it, Matt, here we go. So yeah, meaning and purpose, you know, it's... Um, yeah, that's what we're all here for, man. That's, that's what we're all trying to figure out our whole lives, and I don't think we ever completely figure it out. But there's a feeling you get when you're in line with 
good aspects of that. You know, when you bounce out of bed knowing you're stoked about what you're doing, you know, when everything seems to flow, when um, some deep part of you just gets some level of satisfaction in the way you've given something rather than taken, you know, they're little cues and signs, you know. I, I did a lot of looking in the mirror when I was younger. I did a lot of, you know, probably early on psychoanalysis through psychology and through time a lot of more deeper personal reflection. Um, I take a lot of time out in life. I create a lot of space in my life. I don't like to be too busy. I don't have time to reflect. And I've worked really hard on getting to know myself, I guess, and which is not always an easy or fun thing, especially when you're looking at things you're not super stoked or proud of or, or you know, potentially even ashamed of, you know, and it happens to all of us. But I think the more you sort of get to know yourself and the more courageously you follow what feels right for you, that the things that make your heart sing, your blood boil, the... You know, you get it excited about that, that are uplifting in terms of, you know, anything you have to do with them. They're, they're good signs that you're on the track of, <clears throat> of purpose. And to me, I guess a lot of what defines purpose is kind of like the moral compass of, of the values that you've grown up with or, or that you've taken on. Uh, to me, they're a great guiding force in everything we all do, whether we're conscious of it or not. And by taking ownership of some of them, by aspiring to some you, you can use them to guide the decisions you make in your everyday life you know you you know sometimes what the upper path is or what the easy path is or what the path is that you know has the most integrity or um you know or even is going to challenge you the most to grow and by committing yourself to being willing to evolve and, and to grow and to move forward you know that that helps you take make your decisions in, in your everyday sort of and bigger picture life as well i guess um, oh, I got a couple of quotes here I had in mind when I was thinking about it. Um, the Carl Jung one: Your vision will only become clear when you look into your heart. Who looks outside dreams? Who looks inside awakens? Hmm. There's another one by, and it's quite a surprising one by Steve Parrish, who's who's one of the most famous uh, modern living Australian photographers. Your creative life purpose is to discover your voice. Your life's work is to develop it. Your life's meaning is to communicate it. Hmm. And there's one I guess I got really early on from my father. My father passed away a long time ago when I was a teenager, but um, he was kind of like, if you got a gift, son, you know, there's an invitation, if not a responsibility, to use it to make the world a better place. Hmm. And to me, we all have gifts. Some people can nurture people through beautiful food you know some have the power of song some can write beautiful words some just know how to hold someone when they need to be held you know some can just listen purely and with no um necessity to reply in the most beautiful way you know some can paint you know some can run you know some can are amazing athletes we, we all have gifts that aren't necessarily on instagram or 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 translatable really obviously visually but I think, you know, if if the more it's funny how much joy you get when, when you give for those gifts and how much comes back in your life expected and unexpected when you do. And I guess as I've already alluded to photographically, I started learning quite early on and partly guided by my own kind of willingness to look at myself and grow 
and also my career and, and, and supporting people to do the very same and becoming very conscious and deliberate with how photography can have a role in that, that is just woven through my whole life. And there's not any time I lift up a camera now where that's not present mm. on one level or other. And that purpose could be just to put a tiniest smile on grandma's face in the corner to, you know, saving an incredible tract of the planet to, you know, fighting global warming to supporting culture and dying languages. You know, I've done all sorts of things and I will continue to do so, um, big and small. And I don't think it can be a bit overwhelming to try and take on the big. And to me, the small can have just as much positive ripple effects as the big. And so starting small on your everyday world, um, now in a time where photography has the most accessibility and capacity to touch people in the world like never in history by a million miles um i work with kids as well still to this current day matt doing the same thing with um wilderness therapy camps and using photography as a tool to connect with themselves and, and country and most of them just have iphones and i just say that little object in your hand you can touch the world in a day yeah, you know, absolutely. It's as simple as that. You can. It's it, that's never been the power that you can wield is unbelievable. You know, if you choose to use it with good intent and and positive purpose, it's incredible. And a lot of them are like, oh. And then you know, when you follow it through, even on a practical level, it's it's quite astonishing. So um, when people look at me with a big camera, they go, oh, I just got this little phone. I just shake my head and go really <laughs> do you know what that thing can do like it's unbelievable <laughs> pretty good yeah well so paul i feel like there's probably some people listening that are like that all sounds great but like i just want to take pretty pictures and i want to get the bangers for instagram and like that's what <laughs> gives me joy and i'm just curious like why do you think it's important to consider how your photography can help make the world a better place and maybe what's your approach in doing that yeah, I guess, you know, it's a little bit of a legacy from my father, from that early quote, I guess. Mm. Um, I mean, I can write. Unfortunately, I can't sing. I can kind of dance. <laughs> I mean, I've got other skills, and I don't see photography as the singular medium that I can, you know, create positive impact on the world. Um, and sometimes I need to pull it all back and just, you know, look after myself today. It's all a bit overwhelming. It's all too much. But I think if you, regardless of what medium it is, if you don't have purpose and meaning in your life, your life's pretty hollow, man. Uh, and I think people know it to some extent when what they're striving for is is more for external validation than it is for you know internal growth and well-being. It, it, it's I wouldn't say it's a dead end, but it's a it's a filler. It's almost like a time filler, and eventually you're going to feel that gap. And I think we all. Well, I'd like to think that most people um, can feel that. And uh, I wouldn't say it's an easy thing to do. And I think it's a constantly evolving thing through life that changes with phases in your life. And you become a father or a family, your whole definition of meaning purpose just goes upside down and totally changes or people pass away or you, you, know, you meet someone you love or, or you find a cause that you suddenly just, you know, your soul's on fire about. Like it's, it's an evolving process, but... I think the closer you are in terms of, you know, knowing yourself well enough to know what what um, 
what feels good and purposeful and right for you to engage with in your life and, and work and relationships and people and friendships and your daily practices for your own well-being. Um, and camera in hand, that can, re- that can translate as well. Like I, I travel with a camera all the time and it's a wonderful tool because it's, I've been in countries where I don't speak the language or, you know, I'm sensitive about what's going on and um, I don't have any money or form of exchange, but I've got a camera and uh, images can transcend language, culture, religion, gender, um, you know, socioeconomics. They, they can just speak beyond and they can be a beautiful gift and way to meet people and share with with anywhere in the world and you know so i i I treat that as a little a little gift i have in my handbag you know that i pull out and anytime it's appropriate to make an exchange that way i'll I'll use that to you know better someone's life i just i just took some beautiful photographs of my very distant dutch family a few days ago which i haven't had for years and you know i've um i've gone into the deep deserts in south australia and and recorded and tried to fight for a dying language with an extremely remote culture that you know uh, that doesn't really have its own voice or, or the resources or capacity to do it. I, I work um, in the conservation realm um, constantly in Tasmania, in particular, you know, trying to fight for special areas of lands. You know, I've worked in the wilderness therapy field of blah blah blah. I think I'm getting a little bit sidetracked, but. Um, because yeah. I don't feel like I can say, you know, what it should mean for people. I can only really speak to what it's what it um, translates to for me and my purpose and what gets me excited and, and fills my kind of um, cup, so to speak, is, is not necessarily the same as anybody else's. But um, No, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and to your point, uh, like let's say someone's listening and, you know, they're like, okay, I've been taking, you know, nice photos for a while, but they don't mean anything to me necessarily and they they're hearing you talk about this and like oh that actually sounds kind of nice how how do they get started you know like where do i what do i do to like get started on this path well i mean it's it's your own path so maybe i would say taking a bit of time to reflect maybe doing some journaling um sometimes early on in life uh, to get to know myself better i've done i've done some of those amazing kind of personality kind of questionnaires where where it helps you define what your gifts are or what your natural inclinations are or the kind of things that um you're kind of wired to work well in in terms of the way you work with people or, or what kind of careers that really suit kind of who you are um you know, I meditate a little bit now and again, but I guess to me it's it's not in any particular form. But I think giving yourself a little bit of space to slow down and reflect because helps remind you. Literally, time in nature is a great way to get you back on an even keel. You can, you can often get caught up in all sorts of what I think are pretty less important things very easily in this technological world we live in. And when you go out into a wild place, as as Matt just said, he went on a ten mile hike just before this conversation. Like nature doesn't care how much money you have, or how many likes you have on Instagram, or how big your bank account is, or it doesn't give two rats. Like it's sort of, and it's quite refreshing to go out there and realise all of that can just fall away, and the other things that are underneath that that are probably more important start sort of filling in that space again and and having room to have their voice and i think by allowing a bit of space it lets that happen i think creative processes like painting writing song what cooking whatever it may be 
create a little bit of room in your being for, for that sort of stuff to come forward as well, to get out of your head a bit more. Um, you know, I've, I've even done some counseling work or, or, or life coaching work to get a lot of more clarity. I even won a course in astrology once, which I thought, what? And then I just out of curiosity and I went and did it for 12 weeks. And it was freaking amazing <laughs> in terms of understanding myself and what my natural strengths and weaknesses were or tendencies. And I was like, yeah, right. And people around me. So there's, there's lots of different ways I think um, you can explore. And in terms of applying practically, if you want more purpose of meeting in photography or any medium, is think about what's important to you in your local life and your local community. Uh, what, if you see something on the news that's a cause that really speaks to you, you know, reach out to the organization or offer some images you already have in your library to, to a cause. Or if there's something local going on, maybe join in or, or offer to come out and take some pictures. Or um, if you've got friends or people in your community or in a club you're already in um, that are already aligning towards a, a certain cause or purpose, joining together can be so much fun because it's not overwhelming or you can't sit there thinking, oh, what can I do? I'm just this little dot 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 person then collectively you can wash that some of that away and and just use the collective energy and momentum and the wider skill set and you'll probably just grow through the process anyway by bouncing off people and and as we'll get to collaborate collaborations are a huge part of my life now yeah i mean do you want to go there sure because I, I had a couple other questions first but if, if you want to dive into collabs we can do that oh you, you you're steering the ship brother you can go wherever you like all right well before we go there i did i do want to ask one more question um and, and maybe this will help people uh get a little bit more concrete about what this might look like for them so for you in your life and in your photography how have you embraced self-awareness courage and vulnerability and tied that together in your photography. Mm. Yeah, you're not pulling the light punches here, Matt, are you, brother? <laughs> it's like heavyweight, Matt, I'll ching ching. <laughs> so, geez, I might have to get you to repeat that. So, yeah, maybe just steal that again, Matt. Yeah. How have you embraced self awareness, courage, and vulnerability through your photography or through photography? Mm. Hmm. I'll just go down a few little threads and see if it touches on the answers you're looking for, Matt. So vulnerability is an interesting one. Vulnerability to me is ties in with authenticity. The walls are down, the masks are off, the real you is present. And authenticity is the most powerful place you can approach anything. And in some ways, authenticity requires vulnerability because it requires you to let go of the things that you feel safe with or, or the things you have covering up those parts of you that you don't always share. And it's a very, very powerful place. I remember um, having a chat to Tony Hewitt once, who's an amazing um, photographer and speaker over here in Australia. And, and he actually said that when you're preparing, say, a presentation that you want to reach people, the content is 10% and the authenticity is 90% of the power of what's going to touch people mm. or move people or connect with people. And vulnerability is, it sounds like a, a dirty word or a scary word. I, I don't see it that way. I see vulnerability as strength. I see it as a position to move forward. I see it as a platform to grow from. Without vulnerability, it's, it's, it's hard to do any of the above because you're taking yeah. an easy road or you're playing it safe or you're not asking much of yourself or it's not requiring courage. And courage and vulnerability do go hand in hand. 
So I guess courageous in my life comes from, you know, that thirst to grow and evolve. Uh, and vulnerability comes from taking on things you're not good at or have no idea or could potentially fail at, uh, which I've done many, many times. <laughs> and and yeah, that's part of a process, that, um, that dance of vulnerability, courage. Uh, and then ultimately the authenticity of, of that is is really empowering, you know, like owning your mistakes or failures and and owning your successes equally well because they're hard-earned gives you a solid platform to move forward from and, and to keep evolving. Um, I think sometimes I put myself in front of the camera because I feel like I need to remind myself of what I'm asking of other people because I do feel like in portraiture it's a very, very intimate thing that you're asking a lot of people. And I feel like you kind of need to lead the way a little bit and if you're going to do really powerful portrait work, you need to offer something of yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't lead, t- ask someone to go somewhere you're not already leading or already offering. So quite often I'll I'll have a camera down for a long time before I'll even pick it up if I'm doing some really powerful portrait work. To, and I'll offer a lot of myself so I can meet and join with people on a level that I'm hoping to then capture uh, in camera. Um, so that's that's a few small, I guess, scratching the surface examples, Matt. I, I don't know yeah, if that's no, kind of that's good. answering your um, question, but yeah. I feel like vulnerability is like the great equalizer, especially when it's you know human-to-human interaction because it mm. it's like a signal to the other person, like, hey, I'm letting my guard down, I'm inviting you in, which in, you know, in our uh, animal brains, that's like, oh, I can feel safe. I feel safe with this person. Um, and then they, they will do the same thing and it really leads to powerful interactions and things of that nature. Um, but I also think mm. you made a really good point in terms of how vulnerability can, uh, help elevate not only your interactions with other people, but also just in your professional life in terms of presentations or even how you approach social media. I mean, that's the main thing I see people failing in terms of vulnerability is they put on this facade this fake kind of personality that's put on the like, show yeah and it's like i can always <laughs> tell. Da, 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 da. look at my perfect world oh my god yeah and um, like i don't know about you but i always i'm always like yeah that's that doesn't seem like a real person <laughs> we notice how it, it it doesn't touch you either it, it might be eye candy but it doesn't it doesn't touch your soul man yeah. You've got to offer some of your soul to touch someone else's soul, and that's just how it works. And that requires courage and vulnerability and ultimately the balance of the two, authenticity. Yeah. And it's a powerful, beautiful space to come from and not a place you can always maintain. It's not always you know safe to be vulnerable. You want to be discerning to some extent as well about where and how you do that, and I think those boundaries are really important and you learn hard lessons around that through your life and work and relationships and that kind of thing but yeah i guess my the way i operate in the world is is very um i guess there's a word congruence matt it sort of means a little bit about being the kind of person that what you see is what you get like you know when a person's being truthful or of integrity or operating from a very real genuine place and you feel safe around those people and you want to you gravitate to those people and you feel comfortable working with those people and the more you're aware of that the more you naturally feel like you can move into that place yourself so i'm quite conscious about who is around me in my life and what kind of workplaces i'm working with um you know and professionally 
when I look back on some of our earlier parts of our conversation about meeting purpose, values, I make a lot of very deliberate decisions about the businesses I work with and the organizations I align myself with and the people I photograph for. Um, and I don't mind grabbing a bag of rice for a few days if my only opportunity is one that feels totally out of integrity. I'll, I'll, I'll take that stance and I have many times. Um, you know, that being said, I've only got one mouth to feed, <laughs> so, so it's a little bit easier for me, you could argue, but... Um, that is a yeah. That is a phrase I've never heard before, but I totally understood what it meant. <laughs> <laughs> like hole in one hole, and I'm still figuring out what that means, mate. <laughs> that one, you're gonna have to just figure that one out on your own, Paul. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, along all these same lines, I would love for you to tell us about your Men with Heart project. Hmm. Yeah, I could do a whole show on that itself, Matt. So I'll, I'll try and summarize it. But um, we're talking about authenticity and vulnerability and courage. This this project is is woven through the entire fabric of, of every part of its being. So for 23 years now, I have been in a very privileged position being the only person allowed to photograph for a, a wonderful community of men in Tasmania. And every year, the Tasman organization runs a, um, a deep, beautiful personal health and well-being retreat for men. And the organization is bigger than that. Like there's men that are involved in, in creating policy for government, for uh, and suicide prevention for men in particular, health and well-being in general. Very, very skilled, capable men that hold um, wonderful positions in the community. But uh, most of the photography I've been doing has been within the bounds of these um, confidential therapeutic sort of safe fun gatherings they have every year for about four days where there's usually a theme that explores an element of masculinity that is worth looking at or becoming better at or, or just fleshing out a little bit more like no man's an island might be a theme where addressing how men are pretty good at isolating themselves and crawling into little shells and, and, and aren't very good at sort of you know, not being okay and speaking out to the world. Um, another one might be like dancing with fire, you know, how do we deal with anger and other things in our life in a positive, constructive way as, as men, as a culture. And it's sort of, the, the work was done with a great level of sensitivity, obviously. It was a deeply therapeutic space, um, which is partly why no one else was ever allowed to photograph. And I had to build up a huge amount of respect and trust to be able to maintain that position and and I had to commit never, ever, ever to show any images ever in the world, hmm. full stop. And after 15 years, I was like, wait a minute, this is one of the biggest bodies of work in my life and possibly the most powerful and potentially world-altering. Uh, I hear that, but uh, you know, can we have another conversation? And um, Bray, we took another five years uh, of conversation and a bit of a change in leadership and the organization for the community to be ready to say, you know what? As much as this has beautifully served our community in terms of, you know, reinforcing, you know, the relationships and the special moments and, and the anchoring of these amazing experiences I've had in these gatherings and, and the transformations I've had and the safety of that by knowing those images would never be seen outside of that, there is an incredible resource here, probably not my much in the world, to be honest, not over that length of time of that level of depth and sensitivity uh, with a, on a professional level. And wow how could we use this to 
it's you know this voice in the world you know we're right in the middle of the me too movement me too movement me too, me too movement at the time which was calling men out to address the darker things of what they're capable of and it was sort of pretty clear to me you know I'm, I'm with this incredible group of men that's doing just that they're like addressing the darker parts of what we've been called out to look at and working and using each other to support each other to to become better men you know better fathers better brothers better uncles um better bosses and and here this body of work could really speak to offering this incredibly intimate beautiful powerful vulnerable um gorgeously intimate portrayal of of men with other men and in a culture like australia that is wow that is not that is not the normality <laughs> it's uh, there's very much a like yeah oh yeah should be right mate oh yeah just have another beer oh i don't really like talking about that funny stuff mate and oh yeah yeah and there's this there's this wonderful humility to Australian culture, but there's a real harshness of humour and and distancing between men, where it's really not okay to be vulnerable, and vulnerability has been seen as weakness. And I think it's it's been massively to the detriment of of, of our entire society. Um, I was like gonna, the statistics for um, oh maybe you're oh, just you about back. to go there. I I was going to ask because here in the United States. You know, there's a lot of evidence that shows that um, the masculinity culture and kind of those expectations of like, you know, suck it up and be a man um, leads to a lot of social isolation and lack of friendships later in life. And then I think one of the leading, if not the leading cause of death in people in their 40s and 50s, men, are is suicide because of that. Absolutely. That's exa exactly where I was going. So there's like 10 men a day that take their lives in Australia and that's six seven eight times more than women and so and really to me that's that's you know with a counseling background and, and, a, and a fair bit of experience in the realm it's it's clear to me personally that a lot of that is to do with they haven't learnt or been modeled or know how to navigate the realms of the heart they don't know how to express themselves they don't know how to deal with anger or depression or grief very well and you know they're prone to isolation and and that leads to overwhelm and separation and loneliness and mm -hmm. and ultimately they don't see a way out of it and this is represents the absolute antithesis of that connection community um you know deep emotional work um vulnerability open-heartedness you know um free emotional expression feeling safe and these spaces have been transformative for me personally. I couldn't do this work and I couldn't create those images without being in the middle and doing that work myself because that is what's built the trust in the community because I've bared my soul and my heart and my grief and my pain and my love and my joy alongside all these men along with them. So I'm not an outsider. I'm not someone... I've even led the gatherings, actually. One year I put the camera down and spent half a year designing and literally leading it. Um, to challenge myself and grow, as as I said, you know, walk the talk in terms of, uh, you know, what what avenues can I take that are going to help me grow as a person and a man. And you know, personally, Matt, I I lost my dad really young. I don't have any brothers. I, I never had any grandfathers. I've gone before I was born. Um, I got a couple of cousins in the world that I didn't meet till I was forty. Like, there's there's no man in my life, and I that was from a very young age. So. 
how do you figure out what it is to be a healthy, well-balanced man? You know, you've got movies and books and yeah. Instagram. It's kind of like television. <laughs> it's not the greatest well-pull of values and morals, man. Like, no. Uh, but what else have you got, you know? So these men have become my brothers and my uncles and my grandfathers. And I'm old enough now that I'm mentoring some of them as well. And as part of the process with the men, this once-a-year thing is, is there's splinter groups of of uh, men's groups that uh, operate all year, like every week or two they meet and mm-hmm. just in whatever way, shape or form it suits them, whether they go out for a beer or whether they play golf or whether they sit down and chat or there's no rules, It's you know, but there's some very skilled men and some very beautiful principles around listening and uh, listening for the sake of, here's an interesting one, like it's it's a great skill to listen purely to understand rather than listen to reply. Uh, and listening to reply means your own story is caught up in the listening. Oh, yeah, I feel that. Oh, I want to share that. And it's just as much about you. And listening to understand is is just about being there for someone else. And mm-hmm. it is not an easy skill to, to learn or, or maintain, but it's one yeah. of the more powerful tools that, that we learn in the men's work. So so ultimately, this body of work, got um, we got a, a big community arts grant and... I went through oh, 30,000 images over 20, 20 plus years. And and really, even though I'm the photographer, the work is not mine. It's the communities. And everything that has happened with that work ever since has been woven through a process to get the blessing from the community and committee and people. I only I don't even do most of the curation. It was it was men and women and and kids and focus groups and committees and boards and all sorts. You know, like uh, I had a say in it, obviously, but I don't see that as my work, even though I physically created it in the moment um, with through my own and obviously my own filter is going to influence what comes through. But so it's been an exhibition that's travelled all around Tasmania. We've had five exhibitions in Tasmania, I think, over a year and a half. Is more than 10,000 people have been through the exhibition physically. Um, it just had a big one in Melbourne. It's about to head to South Australia in, in about six weeks. And the idea is that when the exhibition is presented, it's presented as the images. It's presented with the words, spoken words of the men in the images, with poetry or, or something that they speak to about that image that really, um, that really you know, open-heartedly expresses what was happening there for them. Um, there's these beautiful in-depth 13 video interviews that travel with the exhibition that are all about men's work and how it's impacted their lives, the challenges and the joys I've had from doing it. So basically we're trying to create all these bridges across different mediums that are going to be able to, which means that pretty much anyone who comes who relates more to spoken word or video or or imagery or, or written words that they can relate to and then the other aspect of it is we actually offer experiential talking circles or heart circles within the confines of each exhibition with skilled facilitators. And wow. it's quite amazing who comes and, and they get a real-life experience of what it means to be in a, a safe, facilitated environment where you can drop the mask and be real and find an authentic, sort of vulnerable, safe place, you know, only by choice, obviously. They can just listen if they want. Mm-hmm. And then the other interactive aspect is we've invited everybody who comes if they are moved enough by any singular image to write their thoughts and feelings and place it with that image. 
and then that is built up so we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of um mm. of of kind of interactive parts and that becomes a part of the exhibition so it becomes an interactive communal exhibition and that i hope will travel all around Australia and wherever it goes in different places outside of Tasmania, we invite the local uh, men's community that are doing good men's work to come together and rally around the exhibition and support it and host it and be the facilitators for those talks and allow men's groups to come in or do walkthroughs with schools or get the community involved in any way, shape or form they want because it's a wonderful spark and it's a very moving exhibition, Matt. Like a, I've never seen so many people in tears in my life, like moved to tears with anything I've seen in my life anywhere. And obviously I'm quite involved personally, but also that's my literal experience. It, you know, it's one of those age-old things, you know, a, a, an image can just transcend words so wonderfully and just reach a place in people that is difficult to do any other way. That's beautiful, Paul, and I'm very impressed and, like, inspired, I think, Anyone listening, hearing you talk about the work that you've put into this project and, you know, hopefully the impact that it's going to have, you know, not only on the people that get to see the exhibition and go through that experience, but then hopefully, you know, that I'm assuming the goal is for that to have ripple effects out into the world in terms of having people reach out to people and develop relationships and be more vulnerable with other men and things of that nature. So I think it's it's an incredible undertaking you've done. Well, I think it's um, it probably is, you know, at this stage of my career, one of the great legacy pieces. Like, this is way bigger than me, Matt. It's so mm. much bigger than me. And hopefully it'll be around way longer than me. And if we've tried to curate it in a way that, the images are very universally accessible. They're not tied to place or, or culture or age or obviously in gender in this case because it's men's work. But, but um, you know, I chose really classical images and a lot of black and white work that, you know, images that have a real timeless kind of quality to them. And, and literally one of my jobs this afternoon is to edit the latest the latest gathering uh, that I just shot, actually, just before I left on this trip. So mm. I'll probably be doing this for the rest of my life. Um, I really want to translate this into book form. I'd love it the as a resource to start being used by other organizations in mental health and well-being um suicide prevention you know beyond blue domestic violence you know it's it's very rare to have such a such a deep pool of really positive images around men and interconnectivity between men and, and men and fathers as well um so we are very open as a community to to offering that as a resource and i see that as maybe one of the ways it'll live on and you know, we'd love to be picked up, um, you know, on a government level to some some extent, um, from a funding point of view, to 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 reach further. I love it. If you want to see anything more about it, um, there's a website called tasmen.org.au, um, which is and there's a section on men with heart in there. And you can read a bit more about it and then see some of the images. Yeah, we'll we'll put a link in the show notes for sure. All right, Paul. Well, earlier you had mentioned collaboration. And uh, I have a, a little quote that'll kick us off that got me to smile the other day. Um, and it, was, as soon as I read it, I was like, yeah, that's exactly right. So the quote is, competition happens at the bottom. The people at the top are collaborating. <laughs> mm. And I know that you're into collaboration as well. And I was wondering if you could talk about how that's been a game changer in your photography pursuits. Mm. yeah huge huge part of my life Matt like and 
easily one of the richest and most rewarding parts of, of my life and in ways that I'm still coming to terms with. There, there's some obvious practical ways where collaboration can really, um, you know, that, that old phrase, the sum is greater than the parts. Like, it's so freaking true. Like, some of the groups I've been in, you know, with, with, with a beautiful purpose that I felt overwhelmed on my own all of a sudden became achievable in a group. And with the shared resources, the wider skill set that we have, the finances you can reach into, the context that you have, the, um, the reach, and just the energy and motivation in a collaborative process. When, you, when you're falling down, someone comes in and, and picks up the flag and carries on for you until you're ready to take your turn again. So momentum can just carry on. And man, there's so many things I've been a part of. I'll share a few if, if that's appropriate. Um, yeah, yeah, please do. A really fun one I, I started on with about 10, 12 years ago in the conservation realm, because conservation is a huge part of the, the culture of photography here in Tasmania, particularly landscape photography. We have one of the greatest um, histories of, of landscape photography anywhere in Australia. Um, and it's a huge part of the, 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 the landscape, as it were, of the culture of photography here in Tasmania. And yeah, um, I lived to uh, Don Braskis, I guess. Yeah, well, there was many men before him. Um, Peter Davoskis and, and Olegas Trujanis were right at the pivotal point of, of, of sort of making that um, a deep, powerful reality of how images can be used to alter policy and at a government level and save huge tracts of land. That, you know, Peter lived literally five minutes up the road from my house. And I was literally at my opening exhibition in... Um, and he passed away in 1996, just before I got here. And Chris Bell lives just around the corner from him, who was one of his mentors. And Rob Blakers lives 60 seconds around the corner on that way. And Grant Dixon, another 60 seconds the other way. I'm surrounded oh, wow. by <laughs> a lot of the greatest working uh, landscape photographers in, in this part of the world. It's yeah. It's almost like it's almost like the neighbourhood, Matt. So uh, I think we're the greenest suburb in Australia, South Hobart. <laughs> Uh, quite literally and uh, physically, as well as, uh, as as well as socially and politically. Um, so that really influenced me when I got here, uh, you know. And uh, as much as I was doing landscape photography for my own reasons, I, I hadn't really put it into the sphere of the the sphere of the, the wider world until I got here. And over twenty five years, that's been a really big part of uh, my life ever since. And so one way, um, Bob Brown is a is a exceptional figure in the political community over here in Australia. He was the um, he was a senator in Parliament for thirty eight years. He was the first openly gay senator in Australia. Um, he started the Greens Party, and he was um, very very close with Peter Dravoskis and Alagas, and used a lot of his work. And actually, was one of the people that nudged Peter pretty hard to offer his work into the campaigns uh, to save the Franklin River in particular, which became the the momentum that began the Greens Party in Australia. Hmm. And imagery was a huge part of uh, those campaigns. Um, and ever since has been woven through the fabric of, of their organisations that, that I'm, I'm still engaged with myself. And a little bit further now, so I've done a lot of work with Bob and his foundation, the Bob Brown Foundation. And one of the things that uh, a fellow photographer, Dan Bruin, came up with is is one of the ways you can tackle conservation is, oh, you know, let's do all these horrific photos of burnt forests and all this stuff and, and really, you know, the, the nasty forestry people and blah, blah, blah. And I'm a little bit more of a positivist person myself. Uh, I, I'm more into the dangling the carrot than whacking the stick sort of person. 
somebody somebody to put out it with my art and other things so so somebody came up with the idea of, of Tarkine in motion and the Tarkine or Tarkina is an area in the northwest of Tasmania it's the largest tract of temperate rainforest left in the southern hemisphere of the world it has more documented sacred Aboriginal sites than just about anywhere on the planet. Hmm. Um, has 60 semi-endangered species on some level. Um, has the cleanest air on planet Earth. It's a, it's a phenomenal resource for the whole planet. And it's an integral part of my life to take people there and, and to do what I can to conserve the place because it's 95% covered in mining and logging leases. Hmm. So a guy came up with an idea of why not we've, why not bring artists into that space? And the greatest way to create conservation values is to build relationship with a place literally and physically yourself so it's not an easy place to get to it's pretty wild so he set up all these base camps for anybody to come where they can be looked after and guided and know they're going to be you know fed and safe and looked after no matter what the conditions were because it could be a bit intimidating otherwise and over time it built up to 150 artists from dancers and painters and poets and writers and printmakers and jewelers and sculptors you name it and i sort of became the longest running artist involved in the whole program over a decade and um it was such an incredible way to to help people build relationship with a with a wild place and then the idea is to come back and people create these incredible multimedia expedition exhibitions and then come up with their own collaborations across different mediums and and the ripple effect around us around tasmania around the world uh, with the messaging is so positive and personal and intimate and beautiful and most importantly very accessible because i think art has a way of transcending politics it has a it has a way beauty has a way of, of transcending anything and being so accessible to anyone on any on any level in any walk of life so it's a great way to get people to walk in the door and start engaging with any sort of subject matter mm. and content. And that has been a beautiful part of the last sort of 10 years of my life. And that spilled out into a book uh, where I helped um, – well, I was lucky I got the cover. Uh, and about 20 <laughs> images in a book called Tarkine Trails, which actually addressed <coughs> the very fact we realized it was so wild and quite inaccessible to a lot of people is we created a guidebook, a very, very in-depth and beautifully made one, that offered that bridge into all the different ways and places that people could camp and walk and ride and hike and and kayak and 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 drive through in any way shape or form that suits their abilities and then in conjunction with that we work a lot with indigenous community and that coastline oh my god matt like you can't walk 10 feet in 200 kilometers without running into a living site, a, a midden site, a tool site, a, a hut depression, a, a seal hide. It is the most incredibly <laughs> living, archaeological, um, living uh, accessibility to, to this oldest culture in the world that exists on the planet, even anywhere else in Australia. And, you know, I've been involved in campaigns now because four drivers run all the way through it. Um, just And they go for those living sites because it gives more grip for their tyres and they're just... You know, I destroy tens of thousands of years of culture in a, in a, in a few seconds. And um, so a lot of my imagery has been used in campaigns around that. I did a film last year uh, with a bunch of my friends, uh, Luke Sharkey and Andrew Phipps, um, through Bob Brown. We flew us out with some Aboriginal elders and we documented and filmed and interviewed them out at, at all these beautiful sacred sites and super remote places. And literally while we are there, four-wheel drivers were coming out and running all through it and you know that were that weren't legally allowed to be where they are so we had the sort of evidence for the campaigns and oh that was a bit more good timing <laughs> yeah good timing um we we translated um 
some of that into a book called Sakaina Country Culture Spirit, where we offered the, the voice of the elders of the community to help people understand about the living and real um, relationship they have with that part of the world. Because a lot of people don't believe there is a Tasmanian Aboriginal culture, Matt. A lot of people believe they died in the late 1800s. Um, and it, that's actually, I've actually been places in the world where they literally believe that. Um, because, but you know, culture's alive in, in language and in art and in song. Um, and ceremony um, and values and stories um, regardless of, of the gene pool you know um, and I guess the other really big one um, of late in the last seven years is I co-created a group called the Light Collective and basically um, started looking around at who, who are the sort of top up and coming guns in the landscape photography world that were willing to push the boundaries and we inspired each other and about half a year, over half a year we sort of uh, mainly inspired by Ignacio Palacios he started the whole thing he reached out to me and over half a year we got Adam Williams and Ricardo de Cunha and Luke Austin guys together that had similar value system and similar kind of thirst to grow and evolve as, as image makers and you know what can we do I can, our, our initial motivation is to push each other regardless and to grow and evolve uh, and we could all do that just by being who we were and then as we spent time together, we got a little bit more focused and we moved into projects of high conservation value. Like, let's let's use our voice collectively to do things we couldn't do on our own. Mm. And we're up to the third project now, which actually is going to be the Tarkine, funny enough, um, which I'm looking for. And we're halfway through that. COVID put a bit of a stinker on that. And we go out with a filmmaker, we create a book, uh, and we make an exhibition that travels around the country. And we've done that a few times over already. Uh, the last big one was called Black and Blue. And it was about climate change in Australia, and we used the Great Barrier Reef as the largest living organism on the earth, and the juxtaposition with the coal mining industry, which is a symbol of of basically the other side of the conversation. Um, and we called it black and blue coal or coral, uh, you know, and it was very much about mm. making choices and exploring the big question of how do we find a sustainable balance between our growing energy resource needs and the well-being of our great natural ecosystems because they are becoming very, very much at odds. And this is one of the most visible examples in the world, with the reef being the largest living structure on Earth being half gone, uh, and one that's very accessible to the world and in terms of visually and quite undeniably from a science point of view as well. Um, and that got, uh, we got invited to a TED talk to speak about that, about yeah. the power of um, art to influence and conservation. And we've had some wonderful ABC sort of documentaries. And it's, yeah, so to sum it all up, it's, it's an ongoing part of my life. Um, I'm, I'm just, I'll, I'll talk a little bit later about another project I just released a couple of days ago that's along those lines. But um, as you can see, there's a consistent kind of element of, of conservation, be it around culture or landscape or, or language, um, that's really important to me. And if I can find ways to still make a living and uh, and be involved on those levels, and I, I will till the day I die, Matt. And it seems like the kind of the secret sauce, the thread that runs through all of this is collaboration. Mm. Yeah, particularly at this stage. I, I, I spent 15 years shooting on my own. I, I didn't even... I don't think I even looked at a photography book or never looked online. I didn't learn or get excited or evolve into photography with anybody else's influence um, other than art or music or whatever was around me in my natural life. So 
So I do have a very personal and, and deeper kind of motivation that, and fire, I guess, that, that is not influenced or impacted by, by things outside me. Um, but since then, you know, and we'll probably move into that conversation, the community that I've been involved with and the community in Australasia around the AIPP and the NZIPP has had a huge impact on that. And it now shapes me in different ways, in really good ways that I like. But I, I'm strong enough, I guess, at my core because my initial relationship with it was so personal that, that I can keep the, keep the integrity of, uh, you know, the line that I'm going at pretty well. Yeah, let's talk about the photography culture and community in Australia and New Zealand because every time I hear all of you Aussies talking about it, it's way different than anything we have here in the United States. And I, I mean, I th there might be something similar in Europe like the GDT or something like that, but in the United States, mm. it just doesn't seem to exist. And I know we have way more people, but still. Um, so tell us it's a little big. bit of, yeah. I mean, so, you know, tell us a little bit about, um, you know, like I hear like, oh, I'm a master NZIPP or AIPP <laughs> photographer. And like, you know, we don't have anything really like master. that here. Well, I'm, like, I'm a grandmaster. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what does that even mean? And, what like uh, what is yeah, involved yeah. in all that? Yeah, so I've I've talked a bit about the local influence, I guess, in community here in Tasmania. Uh, there's a group called the Nature Photography Tasmania that I'm part of, which is all those guys I've spoken of already, and that that is a big influence. But a totally different sphere has been the national bodies of photography in Australia and New Zealand. And you know, I'm always looking for an excuse to go home to Aotearoa, to New Zealand, and to see my whanau, my family. And so I naturally gravitated to engaging with their community as well. And being a citizen of both countries, that's pretty easy. So, but I joined the AIPP first, and that's the Australian Institute of Professional Photography, which, to cut a long story short, now actually no longer exists as of a year and a half ago. And that's, that's a whole story in itself. So we currently do not have an overriding body in Australia. But that was running for a good 75 years. And, you know, they took on the, the battles for copyright for, for Australian photographers and they created a platform for national awards and they started building up a, a national accumulative award structure. And that's where those terms come from, Matt. So hmm. if you're consistently awarded at a national level uh, by, you know, the top judges in the country um, every year with fresh and new work, it normally has to be shot within a year or two to keep the integrity of, of something moving forward in terms of um, constantly challenging yourself to evolve. And, you know, a very, very open, I would say one of the best judging systems in the world. Um, and I've judged quite a few competitions around the world in the last 15 years. Uh, and one that's constantly evolving. So there's nothing perfect. It's artists judging art. <laughs> and there'll always be contentious elements to that. But over time, you know, the, the cream rises to the top, I think, to some extent. I like to think in terms of somebody consistently producing, you know, world-class work. And that accumulates literally as points. Um, and they've had that at a state level around Australia and a regional level in New Zealand. And then that graduates into a national level competition. And over time, you build up enough points to become an associate. And then beyond that, it might take four or five, even 10 years to become a master. And then it's master one bar, two bar, three bar, four bars, five bars, six bars. And then, da 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 da, -da grandmaster. <laughs> which I, I got about three three years ago. So my friends call me Grandmaster Poobah now. Uh, or or Grandma, Grandmaster Flash. It's a bit of a joke. I think kind of got... Hole-in-One sounds way cooler, though. <laughs> Grandmaster Hole-in-One Flash. 
Oh, there you go. That's what, I could make it a rap song. So, <laughs> so you know, you, you, it might take you 20 years to, to get an acknowledgement like that. Like that is that is not something that's won in a single competition. That is one that is hard on earned over a long, long period of time. So, hmm. as much as it's not an academic award in terms of um, you know study at a university, it's uh, within its own sphere. It has a fair little bit, fair level of credibility. Uh, it's not without its own controversy, you know. And there's other photographers that don't engage in that. But what it has meant to me is it has offered this whole realm of community to me that I never was a part of before. And all I've judged every awards in Australia multiple times around every state, and I've got a bed and a place to stay all around Australia. I've got people to borrow gear off and go on trips with and uh, refer work to and from. Uh, I've got mentors in different fields. I've sat by and literally been challenged by some of the greatest photog- living photographers in the country and every every realm and every genre, uh, arguably. And I've been pushed as a judge in particular to really deeply understand visual communication on a level that I never really applied myself to before. I've learned a huge amount about visual literacy. I've had a platform to push myself. If I didn't have that to aim for every year or make myself do it, I wouldn't be a photographer I am today. Uh, I wouldn't have pushed myself. I wouldn't have experimented as much. I wouldn't have tried new things as much. Um, And I wouldn't have grown anywhere near. So it, it has actually not necessarily very consciously at first um become a beautifully impactful part of my life and uh very sad to see the ipp go down there was there was a bit of, bit of politics bad timing mismanagement i'm not the person to speak to that but the new zealand one is live and well um i was over there judging the new zealand awards last year and that is easily one of the most beautiful communities in the world they're so close so supportive and they push themselves really hard as well it's it's just a wonderful environment um, and melting pot to, to just accelerate your growth, I, I'd argue, mm. um, and be part of a community and also have their support as well on a professional level. If you're having issues with copyright or illegal issues come up, you've, you've got people that, that have the background and knowledge and resources and the cloud of a, of a, of a national organisation behind you as well. So there's a big push for them to, to accredit people professionally. Um, that was controversial in a lot of ways and... I don't think it worked perfectly, but I really appreciate the intentions. So, so I don't know if that answers your question. Um, you can you can get double grandmaster, but I think that takes another twenty years. But uh, I, was, I don't know if I'm sitting my laurels. But after reaching there, I'm kind of like, oh, you know, I don't know if I need to keep going on that regard. But right. it's, uh, maybe it'll help to sell some workshops. I don't know. But it's that personally means a lot to me because I know it. You know, it's twenty years of my life. You know, and it, it's or fifteen years of my life. It, it hasn't come overnight, and. And it's been gifted to me by my peers, who I who I deeply respect, uh, as well, and have grown from being around. Right, it, it has a little bit more weight than award-winning photographer. Yeah, I mean that, that's the misnomer. Like you can go, you can go in on your first first day and get a, a, a bronze or a silver award and call yourself that. Um, but yeah, you won't be calling yourself a master or a grandmaster in, in a hurry. Right. Um, but yeah, it's you know it is there to use as a platform commercially or um from a marketing point of view as well and you're completely welcome to do that yeah all right paul well we have time for a couple more of those examples i know you wanted to talk about sky dreaming and also would love for you to talk about the talking landscape photography show yes another sort of interaction with the community you know COVID hit all of a sudden can't shoot, can't travel, can't do a damn thing. 
uh, except maybe when it's in your back garden, um, which is a whole other conversation. <laughs> so my good buddy um, Luke Sharkey and and a, and a mutual friend of ours, Nick Monk, decided, well, what can we do for the community? How can we keep everyone sane and how can we travel virtually? How can we support each other through this hard time? How can we celebrate doing what we love in a way that uh, we can do for an armchair? And we came up with the idea for a live um, visual YouTube-based show called Talking Landscape Photography. And we committed to six shows. Uh, and we're now on 109. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a bit like you, Matt. That could be, a, that could be a, a, a bottle of whiskey sometime to figure out why we're still going. And uh, without sort of trying, that's become a really big part of my life as well. And now I get to reach out to people like Matt. And actually, we just had Sarah Marino and Alex Noriega on the show this year already. <laughs> Uh, from America, and I can almost reach out to anyone on the planet who I'm inspired by or think is amazing or would love to talk to or make a connection with and say, hey, man, how about it, or, or women. And, um, yeah, it's uh, and anything I want to learn about. We had a great AI show um, with Tim Parkin and Matt yeah. Palmer and um, another good buddy of mine from New Zealand's, uh, Jason, um, just, a few, just, oh, just before I left, actually. Um, that's yeah. going to be an ongoing one, obviously. Uh, I listen to yours, and then you can listen to ours, Matt, and see see if we. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's not a lot of crossover, actually. They're quite different. Oh, good. Um, but we go for topical issues. We look at every single genre of landscape photography under the sun, from underwater to aerial to to macro to black and white to infrared to um, you know bioluminescence, astro, you name it. Um, we look at places in the world. We do portraits of great photographers in the world, and not just necessarily famous ones like. If somebody's up and coming, we really think could use a good platform. It's a wonderful to be able to offer that as well. Uh, and then of course, you know, any of our own journeys. The last show we did was Antarctica from Luke's six, seven week journey. And over summer, I'll be doing one of my workshop I just did in Svalbard. Um, funny, I just bumped into Thomas Heaton in the uh, in the Husky Cafe uh, just before he went out with all his crew on the same boat that I just went on, and I tried to pass on a few tips and. Somebody just five minutes before the show sent me a, a, a link to his his vlog of what he's already done. He must have been off the boat like six days or something. And he's already done it. So wow. I'm going to watch that after this and, and relive it. Um, so, yeah, so that is a free resource. We, we, we have started a Patreon years ago and never even put it up. So that basically has been a complete labor of love uh, with no ties to any industry, no strings with anyone, uh, and totally free of any sort of influence. So it's a very, very independent show. Um, bit of a conservation flavour in that we're all quite straight shooters and uh, fairly conservation orientated but you know that that doesn't impact the show that much and I think it's a bit unusual that it's live and that it's visual and uh, rather than and I think you know in some ways our reach could have gotten bigger I think if we were just a podcast but um, put you and it's a bit edgy being live all the time uh, uh, but uh, occasionally it's not with the Americans in particular we can't do it because it's three in the morning and then I guess Sky Dreaming. Sky Dreaming is an ongoing project. I'm super passionate about aerial photography and it's, I don't know why or how, uh, but it's a huge part of my life. I've done 8,500 kilometres of, of flying in the last uh, six months, I think, or eight months uh, on various projects. So I just flew on Iceland about two weeks ago as well, actually. That was, I was gonna say, pretty touch and go. I was going to say, Paul, like, people are going to see your name on the, on the show list and you're going to be like, all right, I'm going to learn about aerial photography. And then they're going to listen. They're like, they're not talking about aerial photography at all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, it's like, it's like this much of what I do. So, but it's 
for some reason or other, it's been a little bit on my face of the world. I, I think it's partly because um, personally and artistically, it's one of my favourite mediums to, to dance well, in. It's sexy. Yeah. And, uh, and I think um, in terms of pure artistic expression in the relationship and the creativity of how I like to see the world, it, it sits very beautifully with me. Uh, and plus the dynamism of doing it it's wild it's fun oh, it's yeah, edgy for sure. it's, um, yeah, yeah. it's not for the faint hearted it's exploratory and, and it suits me I'm a very intuitive photographer I'm not a pre-planner or a pre-visualizer and you're flying at 200 k's an hour and shooting out a window and your compositions change every second like it's a totally flow state process man you, you can't yep. pre-visualize anything yeah. and that just works for me beautifully and the productivity as well so so sky dreaming is an ongoing um concept really i guess dreaming being and a, a a kind of nod to the indigenous community and the way that um the indigenous people of this country here have seen the landscape from an aerial perspective for tens of thousands of years i don't know how because they live on the flattest continent on earth i've asked elders and i've talked about traveling country in their dreams and that's being huh. how they see country astral travel and um I also think, you know, the key to their survival in one of the harshest places in the world has been to build up an incredibly powerful spatial relationship with the landscape by walking it so beautifully. If they don't know exactly where the next water source is or the next food source, they're gone. And they need to be able to pass that knowledge on um, through to their kids and, and through through the tribes. And um, and that's one of the ways they do it is through their artwork. And when you look at it, it looks so much like the aerial imagery that it create. And... You know, I've been interviewed by Kuru Radio and I've had elders say, hey, bro, how do you how you know where spirit country is? You know, like it, it's like I'm intuitively drawn to these special places, too, through my own relationship with country and and creating my own art. And I, I do my best to get permissions and and not fly over areas that are, you know, law country or men's country or women's country, because um, even though you're up in the air, there's still a sacredness and, um, and a reverence and a respect that, that needs to be that needs to be upheld in, in my regard. So the very latest project, uh, Matt, literally I just flew in the door from about 48 hours ago was the Altitude South project. So another amazing collaboration with myself, David Dahlenberg, Tim Wright, two absolute frother aerial photographers, and uh, we were all stuck in COVID and couldn't do much and probably spent a few years before we can get this off the ground, but we've flown 8,500 kilometres, 44 hours of flying with four of us in a four-seat Cessna, over uh, a few years, um, probably collecting about 60,000 images. And good luck curating that down to 60, but we just did. And we just opened a beautiful exhibition in the Barossa Valley, which is uh, a gorgeous part of the South Australian um, hinterland. It's some of the best wine in Australia too, by the way. Um, and, mm. yeah, we had a sellout sort of opening and sold a lot of work. It was super fun. And we have a little film. We have a, uh, a website called altitudesouth.com.au. Um, have a look have a look at the, the behind the scenes film um, buy some work and again just a wonderful ongoing example that I'm hoping to be taken on as a project of state significance because as far as we know it's the most comprehensive and contemporary exploration of the state of South Australia from the air uh, to date and you know we had some ministers opening the show and we had some interviews in, in the ABC and, and we had some magazine articles in South Australian Life and and we're hoping that sparks um, a conversation where the state itself um, owns and supports the work and uh, funds us to go further. Because uh, we're certainly planning on exhibiting it more, turning it into book form, and hopefully making it part of um, 
at least an aspect of legacy for people's understanding of a snapshot in time of, of the South Australian landscape. Mm. Holy smokes, Paul, you're crushing it. <laughs> oh, you know, not your couch potato, Matt. No, I, I do know how to chill. <laughs> I do, I do know how to chill out though. I've been in bed most of the last day. Just, I, I was, well, actually, I've been awake since two o'clock this morning because my clock's still on Northern Hemisphere time, and uh, I need a bit, a bit of catching up. But um, yeah, I got a couple of workshops tomorrow and the next day on portrait and event photography, actually. Um, Gosh. And then uh, yeah, moving on to the seventeen jobs I didn't quite finish editing before I left on this crazy five-week trip to the Arabian Desert and the Iceland. Um, glaciers and aerials and the, this amazing workshop we just ran in Svalbard um, oh my god that place just captured my heart Matt I haven't been to the Arctic and mm. it's just like ice soul is just singing louder than it has in a long time mate it's and that's beautiful. saying something yeah, All right. lucky man mate lucky man yeah man well well, they say you, you might not want my bank account, but you want my—you might want my memory banks. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good—that's that's a good way of putting it. I like that. <laughs> well, if we go back right to the start of the show about purpose and meaning, um, you know, in terms of summing things up a little bit, um, I've mm. chosen a long time ago that life—the richness of life experience and connections with people—is the greatest wealth that exists in the world, and. I'm far put that on a pedestal above physical wealth and financial security and stability, and I always have, and I probably always will. It's not always easy, you know. It's uh, it's not for the faint-hearted sometimes, uh, and other times it's the most beautiful, easy thing in the world. It's it's just a different path. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's that's where I think the true richness and, and wealth and meaning in life is: connections, community, life experiences. Simple as that. Well said, man. Well, along you, you can those... have the fancy house in the car. I'll, I'll go crash on the couch in your fancy house and borrow your car, <laughs> but I don't necessarily need it. <laughs> I love it. All right, Paul. Well, my last question is, who do you recommend our listeners learn more about? Who inspires you? Yeah, it took me a while to, um, you know, there's people that inspire me. There's people that have been on your show and there's a big crossover. I know. So uh, I... I was hoping to meet him in Iceland. It didn't quite work out, but there's uh, an amazing gentleman called Ragnar Axelsson, and he's a um, pretty old-school, hardcore documentary photographer that um, is woven into the fabric of, of Arctic life and, and Iceland and Greenland and places. And his black-and-white documentary work in really extreme Arctic places is like nothing I've ever seen in the world. Mm. It's very heartful and beautiful. Uh, a good friend of mine, Taylor Glenn, is an extremely well-rounded photographer. I did the greatest adventure of my life with him, down 23 days down the Grand Canyon, and... Uh, Almost didn't come home from that one a few times. But he does a lot of work in, in Africa and different cultures around the world. Um, and he's a very kind of diverse, vibrant, super capable guy, kind of like me. Like he, he thrives on diversity of, of different things. Chris Saunders is probably my favorite aerial photographer in Australia, amongst other things. And an you absolutely and, ev- you and everyone else. Yeah, there's a few of us here, man. We all know each other. Uh, and then there's a lovely gentleman called uh, Roger Fishman who we've had on the show and he's one of the most heartful and passionate and spiritually orientated and very openly expressive photographers and people I've met in a long time and um, he's circumnavigated Greenland twice by helicopter 
Uh, I'm not sure how he funded that, but he's got some of the most unique work that of almost anyone in the world from an aerial perspective that he's um, very happy to share so uh, and talk about. Yeah, so that's, uh, that's a few. A, I follow him on, or we're friends on Facebook, and I feel like he shared recently that like he had like this really lavish corporate life, and he's given that all up to pursue his photography, which is pretty cool. Yeah, big sea change, big sea change. And big shout-out to you, Roger, for uh, helping support me on this trip, man. He set me up in Iceland big time and hooked me up with the, with the top um, drone pilots over there, which was super handy. Awesome. I, I cracked out the new Mavic 3 Pro. I, I got one of the first ones in the country. Raced out between transit flights, uh, hoping I'd get back in time to catch my next plane to the Abu Dhabi and just made it. And man, I put that thing to work. I can tell you, holy smokes! I'm I'm just starting to edit the photos now. It's, a, uh, it's a beautiful that's a, machine. That's a great little piece of kit. Yeah, it yeah. is. Just keep the noise to a minimum. <laughs> little little annoying mosquitoes. I used to hate it, man, and now I'm sort of like, well, they're another tool in the kit. No doubt. All right, Paul. Paul, hole in one hole, and this has been amazing. Cheers, man. Real pleasure, man. Nice to uh, nice to get one back, having you on the show and me on yours. That's great, man. Thanks, brother. Absolutely. Well, thank you to Paul for the amazing conversation. Keep up the incredible work, my friend. I am so in awe of everything that you're able to accomplish. I'd love to hear back from listeners about your own projects that have personal significance. Send me a note through my website so that we can talk about it. I'd love to share your stories too. Last but not least, I would be remiss if I did not thank our latest supporters on Patreon. Patreon is a significant portion of my home's income, and so any support that listeners can provide to help sustain the show and my ability to put food on the table for my family is greatly appreciated. Thanks to Shanda Akin, Jason Coward, and Subha Joshi. I appreciate all three of you tremendously. Okay, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.